Hello, everyone, and welcome back to the SkyBridge Bitcoin Review Show. Uh, my name is John Darcy. I'm a director of business development here at SkyBridge. Uh, we're joined today not by our usual guests, uh, Anthony Scaramucci and Brett Messing of SkyBridge, but uh, by an outsider by the name of William Clemente III. And if you don't know Will, uh, you should get to know him. If you're on Twitter, you should follow uh, his Twitter account there. And if you don't subscribe to the Pomp uh, newsletter, you should subscribe to it because every Friday, uh, Will offers a tremendous on-chain analysis uh, of everything that's happening in Bitcoin uh, during that week. Just a reminder, if this is your first time on the show, uh, we like these to be very interactive, especially now that we have a, a great special guest here today. Submit your questions through the Q&A box at the bottom of your video screen on Zoom. We'll try to get to every question that we can, uh, but this is going to be a little bit different than our normal show where we go through uh, sort of all the news in Bitcoin. We're going to focus more on the on-chain analysis and stuff that Will has been observing over the course of the last week and beyond. Uh, but before we dive into questions, I'm going to allow Will to introduce himself a little bit. Uh, he might be young, but he is prodigious. Uh, so us young fellows are holding down the fort today. Hey, how's it going, John? Uh, thanks for having me on. Um, you know, my name is William Clemente. I'm a well upcoming junior at uh, East Carolina University here in North Carolina. Um, you know, over the last year, partially probably because I've been stuck in the house, um, I've really gone down the rabbit hole with this Bitcoin stuff. Um, you know, kind of gravitating towards um, you know uh, the data and uh, you know it, it, Bitcoin's very unique because you know we have this on-chain analysis where we can kind of um, analyze the behavior of the investors on the blockchain, which is, you know, unlike anything in traditional finance, um, at least from my understanding. So um, you can get a lot of unique insights that you wouldn't be able to get in other markets. Yeah, absolutely. And and Anthony Pompliano, like you and me, uh, I'm from North Carolina as well, Will. So uh, go Pirates. And uh, you, you have a Durhamite here. But before we bore everybody with that stuff, let's dive into this week. So the big thing we talked about in this week's uh, SkyBridge Bitcoin newsletter, for those of you that subscribe to it, and if you if you don't receive it, uh, email us at bitcoinir at skybridge.com. We'll make sure to, to share it starting next week. Uh, but is the decline in hash rate on the Bitcoin network. So historically, there's been a correlation between uh, the price of Bitcoin and hash rate. There's no real strong data that indicates causation. You know, does price lead hash rate or does hash rate lead price? Uh, but there's also insights that we can glean from uh, the chain and, and your type of on-chain analysis. I know you talked about it a little bit uh, in Friday's newsletter that you wrote uh, for Pomp. So what are you seeing based on your on-chain analysis of what is the impact of this decline in hash rate that's largely emanating from the exodus of Bitcoin mining from China? Yeah, so, um, you know, this has been on everybody's minds in the Bitcoin community, especially over the last, uh, you know, two, three weeks. We've had, you know, the largest drop in hash um, in over a year. Um, we have this difficulty adjustment coming up here in a few days. Uh, but yeah, as of right now, you know, blocks rather than, you know, they're usually pumped out every about 10 minutes. It's now up near, uh, I believe, 25 minutes that every block is, is getting pumped out. But um, once we have that difficulty adjustment, um, then that'll go back to that, that uh, you know, 10 minute period. And the miners that are in North, uh, North America will be a lot more profitable. Uh, but yeah, for now, um, you know, we're just, you know, we have to put up with the slower blocks. But the Bitcoin network um, continues to, you know, pump out new blocks, although it is slow and, you know, continues to, you know, move on regardless of, um, you know, hash rate migrating out of China. Um, in regard to, you know, kind of the relationship between hash and price, um, I think, you know, this is something that has been, 
debated often, you know, does hash lead price or just price um, lead hash rate? And I think where a lot of this comes from is the fact that, you know, when hash goes down, um, ideally it means that a lot of miners are, you know, coming off the network and therefore they're probably liquidating um, their assets, which include Bitcoin. So from my understanding, that's that big kind of correlation there. But what I've been seeing, and it's, it's interesting, um, I haven't seen a lot of uh, selling for miners, at least in the data that I'm looking at. I use Glassnode and I also use um, CryptoQuant. Um, you know, th- those are two of the big data providers. There's also uh, Coinmetrics, which I know is a- another really popular one uh, from Nick Carter. But in, in the data from Glassnode, um, you know, the-, the miners have sold just over uh, 5,000 BTC. I think they're up to like 5,200 that they've sold um, since they kind of dropped off the last, you know, two, three weeks, but nothing substantial, uh, you know, that would move the market in a big way. Um, so I, I find that interesting either, you know, Glassnode's data, it, you know, they're missing something there, or, you know, maybe, maybe they're able to, um, you know, liquidate, uh, maybe they're liquidating the miners themselves, the, you know, the, the hardware, or they're liquidating something else. Cause, um, and at least in the data I'm looking at, once again, it doesn't look like they're liquidating that Bitcoin. Right. And, you know, hash rate, from its peak to trough had a drawdown of something like 70%, but has since bounced um, into the 80s as of a couple days ago. Um, what evidence are you seeing of, of mining equipment that's migrating out of China starting to take hold in other locales? Is there evidence of that uh, on the blockchain of, of these mining uh, rigs getting back online? Um, yeah, so, you know, Glassnode, I think they try to not go in the gray area between, you know, like privacy and just like doing raw data analytics. So I think by like looking at, um, you know, starting to add in, you know, the location of wallets and things like that, I think that would, it kind of hops in that gray area. So um, I, I personally am not able to view anything about, you know, the location necessarily, although that would be super interesting. Um, but I have seen a, a slight uh, recovery in hash rate, but nothing substantial yet. It still seems like, you know, it's in a downtrend. Right. Uh, but, you know, I think over the next month, um, I would suspect that you'll probably start to see that trend upwards again. So shifting gears a little bit, one of the things you wrote about on Friday and that I think has been interesting to monitor over the course of the last year, year and a half as Bitcoin has, has enjoyed this, this large rally um, is long-term holders versus short-term holders uh, buying Bitcoin and the way you're able to observe that on the chain, especially in the recent drawdown you've seen, I, I believe, based on, on reading your work, long-term holders are, are the ones that are continuing to accumulate uh, Bitcoin. You know, they, they are strong hands. They have high conviction. You're seeing short-term holders, people that more recently, uh, you know, joined the network are the ones that are more likely to capitulate. Uh, are you continuing to see that? Could you describe that phenomenon, you know, more eloquently than I did and what you've been observing on the blockchain? Yeah, absolutely. So, um, you know, as you said, a lot of the selling, especially over, uh, you know, call it the last two months, has all come from um, very young coins. So the way that you can um, identify the age of the coins is um, through something in in on-chain terms is called coin days destroyed. So, you know, if if a coin is in a wallet for one day, it accumulates one coin day. And once that coin is then moved out of that wallet, um, then it's, it's considered one coin day destroyed. Um, so that's that's one metric that you can look at on chain to see, you know, the size of, you know, uh, how great are, is the rate of, you know, coin days being destroyed, um, you know, over time, over, you know, weeks or months. And then also dormancy, which adjusts coin days destroyed um, for volume, which is something I prefer to look at. Um, and both of those metrics are, have been trending down over the last, um, you know, two months. And then also 
just what you had talked about, the short long-term holder thing. Um, so the way Glassnode distinguishes the two is they use a threshold. Um, it's 155 days, which is also five months. And so, you know, they, they've written a, a paper about backing up why they use that. Um, but it's because once once they cross that threshold, um, statistically, the likelihood of them selling drops off dramatically. Um, so that's why they have decided to use that number, that 155 days. Uh, but, you know, when you look, you know, historically um, in the bull market, you see, you know, short, uh, the longer term holders begin to scale out as prices increase because they accumulated really heavily in the bear market. Um, because these are people that have been in the asset for a long time, understands, you know, the uh, you know, the cyclical behavior of it, right? Um, and then at the same time, you see short-term holders continually um, increasing their holdings throughout the whole uh, bull market, the bull run. Um, and of course, that's, you know, new speculators, you know, drawing in either to capture, you know, hop on the momentum trade or just retail, you know, uh, FOMOing in because they they think this thing's going to the moon, you know? Right. Uh, and, and so you have that dynamic, but then when we go back into the bear, you start to see um, long-term holders buy again while short-term holders scale out. Um, so you can look at this, this dynamic two ways that we've been seeing because um, over the last two months, you've seen the long-term holders have actually started buying. Um, and then the short-term holders have, have once again, you know, scaled out. So, Yes, that, that resembles um, what we've seen in, in the end of a bull market and leading into a bear market, um, but it also resembles what we've seen kind of in, in mid-cycle. So there's been four occurrences of what we're seeing right now um, where long-term holders have you know began uh, to buy heavily while short-term holders have scaled out. Um, once again, at the end of the 2013 and, and 28, uh, 2017 bull runs, but also in the middle of those. So, you know, if you look at the price chart, you look at 2013, we had um, what I like to call like the two double pumps. You had almost these two bubbles. And then in between, there was this like five or six month long um, consolidation phase. And so in, during that time, um, it was actually long-term holders that had, you know, really set the floor there um, while the, the speculators, you know, scaled out. And then once you had that second big bubble and run up into that second bubble, then you saw them scale out once again. Um, and then as well, you saw this dynamic again in mid, uh, or I'm sorry, late, I guess you could call it late 2016, um, kind of early 2017. And in, in that previous bull run that we had before this one, um, you once again saw um, during a substantial correction, you saw long-term holders come in and set the floor. Um, so, you know, there's been four occurrences, two have been bullish, two have been bearish. Um, so kind of make of that what you will. But when I look at some of these other kind of broader metrics um, that aren't necessarily in, um, in on-chain terms in bear market territory, um, that's, why, that, that's why I, I see it as kind of a, a mid-cycle consolidation. Um, and then also, not only is it um, long-term holders buying, but it's also wallets that have very low spending behavior. So they take a lot of coins in, but um, they, you know, I think Glassnode uses like a 25% threshold, I believe, to consider um, an entity a liquid. Um, and, and an entity is like a group of wallets that Glassnode kind of forensically, you know, they use heuristics to say, okay, this looks like one entity on the blockchain, whether it's a person, right. a corporate treasury, um, you know, anything like that. And so they, they analyze the selling behavior of that entity. And once again, I think it's below 25% um, spending behavior. Um, and so they say, okay, that looks like, um, you know, an illiquid entity. And so they're able to kind of look at that change between liquid and illiquid. And when we had that big drawdown, you saw a lot of supply move from what was, you know, liquid and moved 
I'm sorry, moved from being a liquid into um, what's considered then liquid. Uh, and so that, that was kind of a telltale sign that we were moving into this drawdown and then also seeing a lot of coins moving onto exchanges. Um, but since then, and over the last month, this trend has just continually um, moved uh, you know, into what looks like accumulation where now supply has increasingly um, moved back into entities that are liquid. So you know, entities that have low spending right. behavior. And you've also um, no longer seen that uh, big increase in, in coins moving onto exchanges, which um, ideally means, of course, there's some of it is, you know, market makers moving in and out, people posting Bitcoins for collateral. Uh, but in a general sense, um, you know, coins moving onto exchanges is people moving them on to sell, people moving the coins off exchanges. Um, it is people, you know, putting them into some kind of custodial service um, to hold those coins, like, you know, Skybridge uses Fidelity, for example. Um, and so that, that had been a, a big trend that you'd seen throughout the whole bull run, uh, both coins moving off exchanges and coins moving to those liquid entities. That had stopped when we had that correction, but now that's starting to begin again, where you're seeing um, you know, coins moving to the liquid entities. And then also um, this note, it, it's not necessarily turning down, but it's kind of sideways um, the, the trend of, of balance of, of Bitcoins on exchanges. So uh, both of those things kind of resemble reaccumulation um, as well as stable coins. Um, so stable coins had all kind of moved off um, in, in onto the sidelines when we had that big correction. Perhaps people, you know, kind of saying, okay, it looks a little frothy. I don't know if we're going to have a lot more downside here. We'll just kind of wait it out to get confirmation of, you know, momentum of price action, whatever it may be. Um, but we're actually now starting to see those uh, stable coins move back onto um, onto exchanges into the market. So uh, that's another kind of positive sign that's that's showing um, you know we're kind of moving out of this reaccumulation phase, perhaps kind of in, in the latter half of it. Yeah. So the implications of stable coins moving back from the sidelines, which you wrote about on Friday, is is sort of the opposite of bitcoins coming onto exchanges for liquidation purposes. It's stable coins moving onto exchanges, uh, people looking to get long more Bitcoin. Yeah, exactly. Um, you know, that, that's the kind of, uh, you know, thinking process there, especially over the last week, we've seen a lot of stable coins, um, Tether and USDC um, start to rotate back onto exchanges. Yeah. And then you also dabble a little bit in technical analysis. Uh, you know, all the technical analysis isn't foolproof by any means, but as, as one tool in your toolkit can be valuable. When you look at the combination of on-chain metrics, uh, some of the, the phenomenon that you just described, as well as sort of the technicals of the chart. It feels like we've you know, held pretty firmly in the low 30s, mid 30s, uh, while some of these positive signs of accumulation are taking place. Uh, how would you factor what you viewed from a technical perspective into the, the on-chain analysis picture? Yeah, um, absolutely. So, you know, obviously we're in this this range between 30, 40K, kind of just like a crab market here. Um, and we retested kind of that, that uh, you know, mid-range today around, you know, 36.5 and kind of got rejected off of that. We'll see what happens. But, uh, you know, it's been interesting. We've just kind of been chopping in between that. And then, like you said, also on-chain, it's showing um, accumulation. Um, but, you know, it, it's interesting. You can actually use now... Um, on-chain and then kind of cross that over with technical analysis. And this is something that I've started to dabble in because um, it's actually just been introduced to Glassnode where you can now kind of add technical indicators onto on-chain metrics. Um, so one, one kind of variation I did with this was looking at um, OTC outflows. So, you know, coins moving um, out of OTC desks, which of course is, um, you know, ideally resembling buying from high net worths or, you know, institutionals or family offices, whatever it may be. Um, but, you know, this isn't retail going through OTC. 
So, you know, just kind of for first, from, you know, first principles, I was like, you know, the money you want to follow is the big money. So how can you look at that? And that's the OTC outflows. But when you look at that chart, it's kind of just up and down, very noisy. Um, and so what I did was apply um, an RSI to that. And so you get these um, very distinct kind of buy and sell signals based on the strength of those OTC outflows. Um, and that's actually uh, bought, moved into, um, according to, you know, the way I structured the indicator, a buy signal um, in this last week. I think it, it flashed a buy signal around uh, 31,500. Um, so, you know, that, that's one interesting thing kind of, of of the crossover of those two. In terms of just purely TA, I think obviously that, that 40K, uh, 42K level is very crucial. That's also, you know, kind of around where the 200-day the moving average is, which I know is like a very important uh, moving average for determining, you know, a bullish trend for uh, any right. kind of asset in traditional finance. Yeah. And uh, sorry for that interruption there. That was an emergency alert in New York City. It's so hot today. They're urging households and businesses to conserve energy because the energy grid is being strained by, I guess, everybody has their AC on uh, here <laughs> in New York. I don't know. Are you down in, in Greenville right now? I don't know what it's like in, uh, in North I'm Carolina. actually I'm actually home from school, but yeah, it, it's pretty warm. I went to the pool yeah. today, but yeah, it's <laughs> <you> pretty <go>. warm. <laughs> Living your best life. So one of the things you talked about is the lack of new whales coming onto the network. So existing wallets that uh, have been deemed to be illiquid holders of Bitcoin and accumulators of Bitcoin uh, are the ones that are buying, but we have a dearth of new whales coming on to the blockchain. You see one of the pieces of news this week that we wrote about in the newsletter is Citigroup became the first big bank to form officially a digital assets group. Uh, they plan to do more in the space, but we've seen obstacles, uh, you know, whether it be regulatory uncertainty or, you know, FUD around the energy and ESG piece or, you know, China's uh, regulation of Bitcoin prevent maybe further uh, institutionalization of the asset class, um, you know, both in terms of analyzing news as well as looking from the blockchain. Uh, what is that pace of new whales coming on the on the chain look like? And uh, and what are indications that, that it might ramp up in the future? Yeah, so th this is interesting. And I, saw, I think it's something that's, you know, crucial for us, any kind of second leg back up in, in the bull run. Um, so, you know, on chain, you can look at you know, obviously the size of the holdings of different entities. And so what we've seen over the last, um, you know, two months is this decline in, in whales, which in, in terms of um, Glassnose data is um, any entity with more than a thousand BTC. Uh, and it's been interesting because, you know, in the, in the beginning of the bull run, especially after we broke all time highs, you saw this huge swath of whales come on the blockchain. Uh, which perhaps maybe they were just, you know, riding the momentum trend. And, you know, obviously this, any asset breaking all-time highs is you right. know, kind of a no-brainer trade. Uh, but, you know, it, over the last, since late February, um, last two months, we've really seen this big downtrend in those whales. While retail has actually um, continued to be, you know, buying more and more, um, which is kind of contrary to what a lot of people I've, I've seen out there saying that, uh, oh, you know, retail freaked out and sold it. That's actually not what I'm seeing. Um, retail's actually been buying stronger than ever. It's, it's actually been whales, um, the larger entities that have kind of stalled out in terms of um, how much uh, BTC they've been adding to their holdings and just the, the general number of whales um, on the blockchain. Um, and so also you can look at like the new users. So uh, once again, like Glassnode uses these heuristics to kind of identify what looks like a certain entity on the blockchain. And then they look at the difference between um, those new entities that are coming on and subtracts that from entities that look like they're dormant, aren't holding any BTC, aren't active at all. 
And so you get something called net entity growth. You could just think of it as like net user growth on the blockchain. Um, that's actually seen uh, since the since the big uh, capitulation we had, the original one down to 30K you know, over a month ago. Um, we've actually had this big W-shaped recovery in that. Um, and so I think part of that, um, you know, once again, like if you could break this stuff down geographically would be really interesting. Because in this case, I think a lot of that's coming from Latin America. Um, but, you know, in just you know, kind of from a high level, it's, it's not uh, whales because, you, you, you know, you're seeing new entities come on the blockchain, but you're seeing new whales uh, trend down while retail holdings are going up. So just that's kind of my frame of thinking there that, yeah, there's, there's new entities coming on, but it's still not, um, you know, anything that resembles like institutional buying per se. Right. Um, I want to go to an audience question about Tether. So uh, there's this thesis that's existed, this piece of FUD, if you will, around Tether that Essentially, Tether is creating new stable coins without backing from actual dollars. And that when that uh, situation unravels with Tether, then it's going to be a huge uh, you know, piece of, it's going to trigger a short thesis on, on uh, Bitcoin. It's going to drive it significantly lower. Is there anything in the on-chain analysis or, or things that you've studied that can either debunk uh, the Tether FUD or, or potentially uh, warrant the fact that people are worried about it? Yeah, it's a, it's a great question. It's been something that's kind of, you know, been haunting Bitcoin for years. Um, and I think it's a very valid, you know, criticism um, and something to be worried about as an investor. It's not something I'm personally um, able to, you know, really speak on and give you a, a quality answer kind of in depth. But I would recommend um, look at uh, work that Caitlin Long has put out. Um, she's, you know, working on Avanti Bake over there in uh, Wyoming. But she's very knowledgeable about this stuff. Um, you know, I've read some of the kind of short, uh, she puts out threads on Twitter, stuff like that. I think she's actually done some interviews speaking about this stuff, but I think um, she she would be the person to kind of go to and, and look at the work that she's put out in terms of that. Um, she's she's also been kind of, you know, um, she's, she's put out a lot of criticism about, you know, how, uh, you know, well-backed uh, Tether is. But in terms of like the on-chain, um, anything that I look at, I'm not able to really give you any good answer on that. Right. Based on, on the on-chain data you look at, and this is another uh, question from the chat Anno is asking, uh, you're, you're likely familiar with Plan B's stock-to-flow model, which is sort of mm-hmm. the gold standard so far in terms of people being able to predict uh, on a long time horizon the trajectory of Bitcoin. Right now, we're bumping into the lower band of that stock-to-flow model. Is there anything that you see in the on-chain data to support that theory, uh, or generally how do you view it based on, on the way you analyze Bitcoin? Um, so in terms of stock-to-flow, I think it's... it's uh it's a good meme, like for, you know, younger people, we all love <laughs> memes, right? Uh, I think it's it's a good uh, model for people first coming into the space to kind of grasp on the idea of, um, you know, scarcity and, and how that, you know, how can that kind of be visualized over time uh, with, you know, the having every four years. But I, I, you know, I don't think in the short term that I would really, you know, give it any uh, validity, to be honest. Uh, but, you know, we are seeing like the biggest deflection of stock to flow um, in terms of its history. I think um, there's been one larger deflection um, very early on to the upside, but in terms of to the downside, uh, we, we've currently, uh, we're, we're in the middle of the largest deflection from that stock to flow uh, model price. Uh, but yeah, I think it's, I think it's directionally correct. Maybe something you watch, you know, over several months, but it's not something that I per se like look at on a day-to-day basis or right. week-to-week basis. Right. Um, we have another question about the death cross. So a death cross is when the the, the 50-day moving average crosses below the, the 200-day moving average. 
was recently observed in Bitcoin, again, going back to the technical analysis piece, is the death cross something that has any statistical validity in terms of uh, you know, portending lower prices? Or uh, how do you look at the death cross? Yeah, um, I've seen a lot about, you know, uh, a lot of that on Twitter. I think Nidig was, yeah, it was Nidig. They, they put out um, kind of this, this uh, table of kind of what had happened after each historical Bitcoin death cross. And on average, uh, Bitcoin had gone down, I think it was 4% over uh, the next six months. So, you know, I think there's been a couple uh, instances where, yeah, Bitcoin's had a big down draw, but then there's also um, been a few where it's just kind of not, you know, hasn't really mattered. So, um, I don't know. I think it, it's interesting, but, you know, in terms of like it's kind of the price action historically afterwards, um, I, don't, I don't really see any like real pattern there. Right. So we have a question from Lauren in the chat, and it's about the GBTC discount. And I think this is something that has a significant validity is uh, when, when GBTC was trading at a very high premium late in 2020, early 2021, it was a massive hedge fund trade uh, to buy GBTC. And then in six months when the lockup ends, uh, you know, liquidated onto uh, the over-the-counter market at the premium. So you're basically getting a free arbitrage trade. We looked at it, frankly, at Skybridge, but it seemed like something that was almost too good to be true that it wouldn't last. Uh, thankfully, we didn't pull the trigger on that and we were correct on that assumption. So now uh, GBTC is trading at a significant discount, potentially crimping demand for those hedge fund type trades uh, into Bitcoin via that, be that vehicle. Have you observed any phenomenon related to GBTC and how it's affected on-chain data? Yeah, um, so there's like a lot to unpack here. I think, you know, first of all, recently we've seen, just like kind of in the very short term, um, you've kind of seen that premium come up a little bit. Uh, you know, I mean, the discount come up a little bit. It was, I think, as low as like 20, 25%. And then I think it hit as low as negative uh, 4% uh, in the last week. So that's, that's been interesting to also see that along with, um, you know, Coinbase, their stock actually, um, you know, get bid up a little bit uh, while you're not seeing, you know, institutional buying of Bitcoin itself. But in, in terms of, uh, you know, what on chain, uh, yeah, I think, Grayscale was was one of the big drivers of this bull market, as many people probably know, and, you know, the arbitrage opportunity you just described. Um, in addition to that, you know, the cash and carry trade, um, you know, going long spot, shorting the future, which isn't something anybody in the United States could do. But I think a lot of overseas hedge funds had been doing that as well. And that had also driven capital into spot. Uh, but in terms of Grayscale, I think that was very visible um, looking at kind of the balance on, on Coinbase's, uh, you know, on their exchange um, and in their wallets you had seen this huge kind of like drop off a cliff in the holdings from, um, from Coinbase, but that has, that isn't as, uh, as steep as it had been towards the beginning of the bull run. And a lot of that I think was, was grayscale because um, they've come out and said that, that they operate through Coinbase. So seeing that, that slowdown, I think is, uh, you know, can be kind of attributed partially to that, that slowdown in uh, buying from grayscale. Um, I think, you know, looking at kind of the premium and the correlation between when the price kind of stalled out. I think you can kind of see a little bit of a um, correlation there as well. I think, I think that grayscale arbitrage. And then once again, that, you know, the cash and carry trade, those two things were um, two huge, um, you know, drivers into the spot market. And, and part of the reason why we saw this huge, uh, you know, move up and kind of this, uh, this, this move into like this market neutral position, whereas maybe it wasn't people with actual conviction in the asset, but um, you know, right. especially for the, the cash and carry trade overseas. I mean, that's kind of a no brainer. It's just, you know, buy spot short the future and just 
capture that free spread in between, which had got up to, you know, uh, I think it was up near 50% on, like, it was like Deribit or Binance, one of the two at some yeah. point. So. And if you're Sam Bankman fried you pull money out of a bank in Japan, you fly it on a plane to the United States and you, uh, you, you do it manually that way. Uh, <laughs> fascinating uh, guy. We're excited to have him at the salt conference in September, but Sam's um, a genius. Yeah, he is a genius. He's operating on a different level than me and you. <laughs> let, let me tell you. Um, but uh, rewinding more to, you know, we topped out obviously above 60,000. Uh, you know, I guess that was a couple months ago now. Um, Elon Musk, you know, was was pointed at as, as the catalyst for that drawdown. Um, obviously, there was there was some uh, leverage in the system that was unwound during that period. What did you observe on chain during that pullback? And do you think right now we're just at a point where, Leverage has been shaken out of the system and we have, you know, a core group of, of strong long-term holders for, from which we're going to form a base going higher. Or what do you think the path is? This is an additional question to higher prices. What do you think the catalyst is going to be for the next bull run? Yeah, um, I think in terms of the leverage, a lot of that is wiped out, um, especially not... When we had that first drawdown, it was interesting. A lot of leverage got wiped out, but it was actually the second drawdown that wiped out even more. Um, and and so yeah, we've we've lost a lot of that, which once again kind of had been um, bidding up the futures premium and drawing in the, you know some spot interest to capture that that trade, which was like you know indirectly because of the leverage. But now that that's gone, that that's gone as well. Um, I think when when you think of leverage, a lot of people are thinking about like the margin trading um, on these derivatives platforms, but I think there's a lot of, there's also a lot of uh, underlying leverage in BlockFi, for example, or people, um, you know, that aren't necessarily on margin on some of these exchanges, but have borrowed, you know, uh, money to buy Bitcoin um, in other ways, other than just like going, you know, margin long on, on Binance or something like, or FTX, for example. So I think there's some of that stuff that maybe, um, you know, I can't see on chain, but perhaps maybe like very sober, you know, some of these people that know kind of where, you know, where the spots are, where, where kind of the uh, leverage is hidden. But um, yeah, I can only really see the stuff on, on these derivatives platforms, but looking at that, a lot of that is wiped out. Yes. Right. But before we let you go, uh, Steven in the chat is asking for a prediction, the price of Bitcoin a year from now, based on your analysis. Uh, and we're going to put you on the spot and ask you where you think Bitcoin is 12 months from today. Yeah, I think, you know, in a year from now, I personally suspect that this, this bull run will be over, although I think we have a second leg of it personally. So I think it would be hard to say a year from now, but if I can kind of like cop out and maybe say at the end of this, this bull run, because um, I think I think it'll kind of end um, maybe towards, you know, early next year. Um, but I, th I think we, we go to six figures. I think we go to maybe 150, uh, 200K, you know, at, at tops, maybe in like that last euphoric leg up. But I don't see us personally going to, you know, 500K, a million, um, any of those kinds of prices. I think we do right. dip up into the into the six-figure range. And um, I also missed your, the end of your last question, so I guess this kind of ties into this as well. I think, you know, the second catalyst would need to be uh, more institutional capital, you know, the retail really can't sustain an asset of this size. So starting to see on chain, um, you know, an uptick in, in the new whales coming on the blockchain, I think is, is going to be very important to start to see, uh, you know. Yeah. A, a, and, a I, and I think level. regulatory regulatory clarity is going to play a huge role in that. You know, people people like to point to uh, an ESG uh, angle, you know, trying to solve some of the energy issues. They, they point to 
uh, an ETF approval, which would obviously be a, a potential catalyst. So I think there's a lot of institutions that we talk to, you know, being you know pretty large institution ourselves that are just waiting. They, they like the asset class. They like the story. They're just waiting for that uh, approval process uh, or just ratification process from the U.S. government that, that uh, being involved in this space isn't going to get them in trouble. So and uh, we had another question in the chat earlier. Who is this brilliant young man? I missed the beginning of this talk. So this is William Clemente III. Uh, he's a junior, rising junior at East Carolina University in the great state of North Carolina. Uh, he, he writes uh, Anthony Pompliano's Friday newsletter for his POMP newsletter. Um, so if you don't subscribe to POMP's newsletter, you should do that. You'll get uh, a weekly letter from Will. Will, is there anywhere else they can find you? Tell us where they can follow you on Twitter and, and follow your work uh, in addition. Sure. Thanks. Um, yeah. So I'm on Twitter at W Clementi, uh, I, 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 you know, I'm just on there all day long, posting charts, <laughs> looking what other people are posting. So, you know, if you want to reach out, DM me or whatever, I mean, I'll be happy to just talk all things, Bitcoin, whatever it may be. Um, and then I also like, like, uh, John said, I, I do Anthony Pompliano's the Friday newsletter, but, um, we're actually starting to transition over to, um, my Substack, which is just, you know, platform to do the newsletter through. Uh, but I think we're actually going to publish the Friday one on both. So I publish also, you know, some like midweek updates. So if you want some of that as well, then subscribe to mine. But if you just want the weekly overview, then you and what's your Substack? Uh, what's your Substack URL? It's BTC by WC3 um, dot Substack.com. And then that's also in my, uh, in my Twitter bio. All right, there you have it. Brilliant young man. Uh, thank you so much for joining us, Will, on uh, the Skybridge Bitcoin Review. It's a pleasure to have you. Everybody go follow uh, Will's Substack uh, and definitely pay attention to what he has to say on Twitter. He posts a lot of great charts with great on-chain analysis. But thanks, everybody, for joining us again today. We'll see you back here uh, next week at the same time. Thanks for having me on, John. This was a blast.